Good evening, everybody. Why don't you say hi to someone next to you real close before you sit down. Well, welcome, welcome. So good to see all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, if you would please turn in them with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Not all of it, but a lot of it. We'll look at the first eight verses. I title this Abounding More and More because it's kind of the idea behind this. And behind the idea of abounding more and more is also embedded in the text, sanctification. You're being made more holy, more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And just a quick background because it's funny because 1 Thessalonians, as you know, is a five-chapter book in the New Testament. And when we get to chapter 4 here, Paul starts with finally then. And I know people are like, finally then? It's not over. How is it finally then? Paul is wrapping up a large teaching on what the Thessalonians should put into practice. So let's look, look at this text together, knowing we're jumping in to the last quarter of the book. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to unholy, uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. So there's a huge emphasis right here on pleasing God. And that's something that should abound in us more and more. When Paul opens up and says, finally then, brothers, this Greek sentence is used to provide a sense of urgency to Paul's words. So it's not funny that we catch this here in chapter 4. It therefore would create anticipation on the part of his readers. When they got to this portion of the text, they would say, aha, we should really perk our ears up now. Paul's really going to bring something home. And he does. Paul exhorts the brothers and sisters in Thessaly to abound more and more. You see, this is the amazing thing about the Christian faith. It is one that not only grows, it should abound in its growth. God is most pleased when you are most satisfied in him. That's, that's really, in all honesty, a, a big, amazing, wonderful thing in our lives is we get spiritually depressed, we get sidetracked, we think of this, that, and every other thing when God is not the source and when God is not the center. That's one of our biggest problems. Is It's what I call having a very, very small view of God. And if you do, if you have a funky view of his sovereignty or his will or his purpose and his plans, these are all the things in life that are going to sidetrack your growth in Christ. And God wants to see you reach your absolute full potential. I know that some churches have this bizarre way of training young people. It's like beat people down and then to a certain point, we expect you to abound. And that never works. Beating someone never leads to them abounding. 
You can't do that. You can't beat sheep and expect them to produce beautiful fleece and milk. It's cultivated. It's shepherding. You know, that's why Jesus isn't, you know, considered the great rancher. Because, you know, in all honesty, if you go read Proverbs, you know, 23, it says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures. Notice that it doesn't say that the shepherd drives. See, he's not a rancher. He's a shepherd. He's leading and he's guiding us, guys. So our growth in Christ Jesus is the thing that gives God great pleasure. As a father, I can tell you this much. I'm, no, I, I'm more pleased with my children. I didn't say loves more. I wouldn't say something stupid like that. All right? I love my children in their stupid rebellion as much as I love them in their obedience. But let me level with you. I'm more pleased when they do that what is right. I am more pleased with humble submission and obedience. And if you think Christ isn't, you're not reading your word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, right? You know what the fruit of love is? It's obedience. Because it's right in that text. You have no problem submitting and obeying someone whom you love. And John tells us in his epistle that we love him simply because he loved us first. 1 John 4, 18. So, Paul implies here that the things he was about to write to them were not, I repeat, not new commandments, but reminds the things Thessalonians had already received in person. This is one of the earliest letters Paul writes. Most, most theologians think it's the first letter he writes, and I agree with them. It probably is. The Thessalonians had already been instructed in the gospel truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ was. They received it with great joy in that part of Greece. Now they just needed to walk in the reality of it. And I'll be honest with you, walking in truth is harder than just believing in truth. Walking in truth is harder than just believing in truth. Because you can have a mental assent to something and then never put it in practice. Jesus doesn't want us just to believe in him. He wants us to follow him. And the more we follow Christ, brothers and sisters, the more in Christ we will abound and abound and abound in greater, greater things. All right? Just as all of your parents want great things for you, most parents do for their children, Father God wants the greatest things for you. And real, fee- real, real freedom is actually found at the feet of Christ. It's found in submission. So let's pick up verses three through eight. We're really gonna kind of dig in here because if I hear one more person say the dumb phrase of what is God's will for my life, I'm gonna say for the 10,000th time in 25 years of pastoral ministry, it's found very, very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. All right, I can say amen. We can all go into small groups now and then go home. And it would be enough. But I've studied a lot more, so 
Let's keep going. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The will of Father God in the life of every single believer is collectively whole as the church, our sanctification. Sanctification is the longest part of your entire salvation experience because all of salvation is in three phases. No matter what you've been taught, this is proper theology. Your belief in Jesus Christ upon hearing the gospel is your justification. And no, it's not like the cute little axiom that most pastors say, it's just as though I never sinned. No, wrong, because you did sin. And that is only to cheapen the grace of God anyway. So let's not think of cute little quippy things that help us memorize. I'm, I'm good for memorization and mnemonic devices and all things like that. I like that. But that one for me spits in Jesus's face. It's just as though I never sinned. Well, then Jesus didn't know he never needed to go to the cross. You ever thought of something? Bring it out to its logical, absurd conclusion. We have sinned. Again, I was sharing with the Virtues Campus students. We human beings do things to each other that no other animal in this entire planet ever does to other animals. We do the most atrocious of things. I don't want to go into a list of it. Think about some of the atrocities some human beings have done to other human beings. We don't kidnap children and sell them into a sex slave operation, right? You ever see a chimpanzee do that? Or a giraffe or a hippopotamus? No, they don't do that. Humans do that. So a, a really bizarre view of sinfulness is another thing that'll lead you down the weirdest paths in your life. We are sinful wretches as a species. This is true. You can say you don't like it. You can say, well, that's not a good positive self-image. I'll tell you, the, the truth of the matter is, it's the truth. The truth of the matter is, we're all giant rebels. And we are vessels of wrath by nature. It is when, when we come to Christ that we become objects of adoration. It is when we become accepted in the beloved. It is when we are adopted into the forever family of Almighty God. That's when, and it's definitive. It's definitive. We all need that. We all need justification. It's Father God banging the gavel and saying, not guilty. And the only reason we have proper justification is because Jesus Christ, the holy and just one, went to the cross for us. That's why the gavel can be banged that we are not guilty. Because the God's honest truth is we are. Of course we're guilty. But he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul's shortest explanation of the gospel truth and the power behind the gospel. We are rebels and yet Christ the just went to the cross for a bunch of rebels. 
Justification is the quick thing. That's when you believe in Christ or call upon his name. Believe that God the Father raised him from the dead. That's it. We're all awaiting the last stage of our salvation, which is exaltation or glorification, where this mortality will put on immortality, where this corruptible body will be in a moment transformed into a beautiful forever body. So you got justification really fast. Glorification will be in a twinkling of an eye. What's the big, long, slow, churning wheel process in between? It's sanctification. Sanctification is where Almighty Father God takes you like the lump of clay that you are and says, I see a beautiful vessel. And it doesn't matter what the world sees. It matters what Father God sees in you. Jesus sees the diamond in the rough when everyone else just sees rough. And he puts you on the spinning wheel and he molds you and he makes you and he conforms you. And there are many, many times where we get out of shape and Father God has to put us back again, back again, back again on the spinning wheel so the master craftsman can have his way. That is God's will for you. It is your sanctification. Being more and more transformed into the beauty, beautiful image of Jesus. That's the whole idea. So this sanctification is not only our being conformed into the image of of Jesus, guys. It's also about our consecration unto the Lord. As we submit unto the Lord and yield unto his leading and guiding, the more he will conform us into Jesus' image. And that means in a very absolutely positive, real way, the only one holding up our, our sanctification is us. And it's only us. It's never God. I won't accept that from people. I'm very, very flexible, and then I'm very rigid when I need to be. I've only heard a couple of people say, well, you know, God's not really having his way in me. And I said, no, you're not allowing God to have his way. Because you placed yourself into that state of undeveloped arrest. You did that. Not God. You did it. You're stumbling and bumbling. You're faltering. You're spiraling out of control. I hate to tell you, the best thing you do is get out a mirror and scream at yourself because it's you. It's not God. God is faithful. It says when we are faithless, he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful. That's why, John, that's why James can tell us, draw near unto God and what? And he'll draw near to you. Want to know why? Because God didn't go anywhere. We did. We're the ones who run, we kick against change. It's us. You see, the Lord is constantly conforming us into his image. Thankfully, this is something God is doing for his children. He's the one who's constantly chastening us and bringing us back and it's that amazing love relationship. And in all honesty, Hebrews 12 says clear as day, no punishment is enjoyable in the moment, right? How many children say that? Go, yeah, spank a time. Woohoo! Let's go. Said no one at any time in 6,000 years of created human history. Nobody lined up and said, Look, Dad, I got to let you know I'm a rotten human being. I broke a bunch of your stuff while you were at work. 
Don't worry. I found a very thick paddle. I think this should do. I believe that seven would suffice, but maybe nine will truly teach me the lesson I really need to learn. I never have those conversations with my dad, I'll be honest. And I don't think anyone has. Nothing's fun in the moment when you're being disciplined. And I think that is a very important word because people often confuse punishment and discipline, and they're different things. Punishment is this making you feel like a worm, making you feel irredeemable, making you feel like an absolute, just a huge dirt ball. And people think it's upsetting when we have to go through the steps of Matthew 18, 15 and deal with someone who's in a want, sinful situa- situation. And, it's, and, and everyone says, well, you know, why are you punishing said individual? And I say, it's not punishment. It's called discipline. It's called church discipline. If you're out of shape and you want to be in shape, what do you have to do? You've got to start eating healthy. You've got to go to the gym three to six times a week. And you know what it takes? It takes discipline to get back in shape so that you can have more discipline. Discipline's not, that's that's not the problem. It's so often how we perceive things. Discipline is a wonderful thing when it actually conforms us more into the image of Almighty God. Discipline is a great thing when we feel the sting of being placed out of fellowship in a Matthew 18, 15 situation so that someone can humble themselves and come back and be drawn back in. And then that is exactly what discipline is meant to do. It is restorative, not punitive. Well, that's what discipline's always supposed to do. It's supposed to teach, exhort, and restore. That's what it's always meant to do. Philippians 2.12, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so, yes, in a real absolute way, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I know what everyone's thinking. Ah, oh, so you're, you're a big works guy. No, I'm a big grace guy. But I'm telling you, you can't find all of God's scripture to fit into your cute little preordained boxes. It doesn't fit. Because man-made theology will always be that. What's the problem with it? Man-made. You know what my big problem with every dyed-in-the-wool five-point Calvinist friend of mine? Man-made. What about all my Arminian friends? Man-made. Dominion theology? Man-made. Dispensational theology? Man-made. It's all man-made. Men and women start thinking their own philosophic ideas come into play and they form these little things. Biblical theology trumps everything. You have a a favorite little systematic theology camp that you fit into, stop reading the Bible because a verse is going to come along and wreck your faith. And then you know what it's going to show? You have ill-placed faith. That's what it's going to show you. Well, I believe. I don't care what you believe. And I say that with every bit of love I can muster out of my stony heart. Because if you're wrong, I don't care. I love people enough to say, you know you're dead wrong on that, right? Just so you know. It's like, I remember like this huge debate broke out when I was part of the Bible Fellowship Church, you know, modern worship. Bum, bum, bum. Will we let people play drums in church? It was 1985, by the way. Most of you are like, I wasn't a 
alive in 1985. I know. That just makes me a lot older than you. But people were really spazzed out. I mean, are we really going to allow drums in church? And I just remember the youth pastor of the church remarking, guys, you know that 2,000 years ago, they didn't sing Amazing Grace in the early church, right? I mean, you boneheads get that, right? You don't really think that in the first century, they also quoted the Apostles' Creed since it wasn't formed until like 200 AD. So there, there's another problem with your man-made theology right there. All of these little things, how we love to conform God into our image and how stupid that is. Instead of allowing almighty, magnificent God to mold us and shape us into his image. I was having a conversation with a friend just enough, funny enough, this afternoon about trying to find a perfect church. And I said, oh, please, in the name of Jesus, if you find it, please don't join. And he said, what? I said, yeah, because you know what? Your sheer presence will screw it up and then it won't be a perfect church anymore. You see, none of us will find a perfect church. I mean, you find, look, I'm also not saying, hey, you know what's a really great thing? Let's find the crappiest church on the planet and try and bring it back to awesomeness. I'm not, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that sometimes we can work ourselves into this weird, bizarre kind of mold where we expect divine perfection from, let's face it, fallen creatures who are saved by grace, who grace by grace are being more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as they yield unto the work of the Spirit. See, when everyone in a church community has that mindset, then every single one of us will get involved in each other's lives as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because we'll have our eyes centered on Almighty God and His grace. When we do that, the second part of, of Philippians 2.12 really comes alive because then what we really start realizing is you can work your way right to hell in the name of greatness and goodness and anything else because it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You can work your way right out the door. Work your way into a frenzy. You can work your way into a lot of different things. If you are not fixed upon almighty God, you build your house upon the sand and the first real good gusty windstorm comes and blows it over because you've got no foundation. Jesus said, if you hear my words and do likewise, you will be like a man who built his house upon the rock. And the winds and the waves came and the waters rose. And that man's house was firm, for it was established upon the rock. And the rock is Christ. Yes, God has the greatest part in our, in our sanctification, the greatest part. But brothers and sisters, don't kid yourself. Your part is to yield where Father God's part is to mold. And if you forget to yield, it's not like God forgets to mold. But the truth of the matter is, our God is the greatest gentleman in the universe. And he's not gonna do something against your will. He will work in conjunction with your willingness. And I think we forget that sometimes. We forget it. 
What is God's will? First Thessalonians 4, 3, our sanctification. That's what it is. You don't have to wake up in the morning and go, Lord God, do I wear the red socks or do I wear the blue socks? Do I wear the white socks with the red stripes? I mean, Lord, I just want to be in your will. And I'm being goofy. Look, I'm being silly. You guys know I'm a silly goose. You don't need to pray stupid stuff like that because it's stupid. I'm pretty sure if God could give you a holy visitation, you'd be like, I don't care what socks you put on. Just cover your gnarly looking feet. Now, don't go outside with those cracked up hammer toes and whatnot. I, I think feet are gross. You guys know how I feel about feet. That's why when Jesus washed feet, my mind was blown when I got to that passage in John. There's all kinds of things that we in the body of Christ never ever need to pray about. I had someone challenge me, like, yeah, we'll name one of them. Cocaine. You never have to go, Holy Spirit, should I snort coke today? There's never going to be a like, well, you know, you really shouldn't, but this one time, I think it's a good idea. There's a bunch of things we never need to pray about. You don't have to pray about that. Why would you pray about things that you already know are sinful and things that God would never want you to do anyway? Lord, I really like my girlfriend. She's mega hot. And I'm really sure that one day I might like to marry her. And so if we go a little further than first base, I'm sure you're okay with it this one time. Hey guys, don't ever pray like that. I told you, I've already instructed all the young ladies in here who, when you get too handsy, to tell you to close your eyes and get ready for a big surprise. And Amnesty knows what I'm going to say next. I said, then take your high heel off and put it on your hand and wind it as hard as you can over your head into his forehead. And when that dude walks in with a two-inch divot in his head, we'll know who's in sin. You just do every leader a favor if it comes to that. No, seriously, don't, don't hit a guy in the head with a high heel. My luck, you'll kill him. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. This isn't a mere suggestion in the Greek text. It's a direct command. Now look, this is what we can draw from the text. There's obviously something going on in Thessalonica. And it's something of a sin nature. And if you're a student of history, you actually know that the Greeks had a weird idea of mixing sexual bizarre practices into their religious practices as well. And Paul is trying to write to the Thessalonians and let them know, don't follow suit. Don't pick up the customs around you. And, and you know, it's funny because just as a subplot point, people always kind of get on God for this one in the, in the books of Moses. Probably Leviticus more than anything else. You know, people call up Bridge Bible Talk and they're like, why didn't God let Israelites get tattoos? And I just say, well, did you read the passage in Leviticus? It's don't be tattooed on behalf of the dead like Canaanites do. You see, there was a pagan practice around what the Canaanites were doing in piercing their body and getting tattoos. It was part of the pagan cult and some of the bizarre religions that they had going in that day and age 4,000 years ago. And what God was saying is, I don't want you influenced by what the nations are doing. In a very similar way, not that you'll all agree with me, it's okay, you're totally free to say, Jay, you're just crazy and out of your mind. I love you guys enough to take your pushback. But I'm just telling you, I don't believe in Christian dating. I don't believe it, and I'll tell you why. 
because you're trying to take something the world does and you're trying to sanitize it. All right? You're taking what the world does and you're sanitizing it. It would be like having a, you know, I don't know, a Christian hookah party. Marijuana optional. It's legal now. You can go buy it in New Jersey. You're trying to do what the world does and you're trying to sanctify it. You're trying to sanitize it. You're trying to Christianize it. You know, historically, if you look through the epochs of time, it, it usually doesn't go good for the church when we attempt to do those kind of crazy things. Matter of fact, it never works out and does that. And I know you're thinking, no, I do not believe in arranged Christian marriages. I don't think that your parents should get together with other people and, you know, marry you off. I didn't say I believed in that either. What I believe in is courtship. I believe in young people getting to know each other in a very platonic way to see if they can work their way towards a marriage. Because I know I'm going to blow your brains out when I tell you that 85% of marriage is companionship. Okay? I hate to tell you guys, eventually you start losing muscle mass. Ladies, things happen. You have a couple of children, your body starts playing gnarly tricks on you. You look at yourself one day and you're like, hmm, something has changed here. Go read Proverbs 31. It tells us this in the Bible. This is what I love about God's word. No surprises. You know there are no surprises in the Bible? There's no surprises. It says that beauty is fading and charm is deceitful. Doesn't it, ladies? Yeah, you know it does. It's exactly what it says. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised in the gates. That's awesome. That's really awesome. You don't believe it's true? Go read Genesis again. I dare you to. Adam names a bunch of the animals that God brings to him, and then he looks around, and there is no one like him. And the first time... Almighty matchless God says something is not good. And he before had just said it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good on day six. Not just good, it's exceedingly abundantly good. It's really good. Because on day six, God created man in his own image. And nothing in all of created history is made in God's image except for Adam. Just, just humanity. And then the very first thing that is not good is that the man should be alone. And God said, I will make for him a helpmate comparable to him. It's companionship, brothers and sisters. My wife truly was my friend before I had a physical attraction to her. And glory to God, we were such good friends because she didn't think I was attractive at all. You don't have to believe me. You can ask her. She comes to church here too. She's like, yeah, you, you know, ooh, yeah. You know, she had like, you know, Keanu Reeves on her wall, you know. I look at him like, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. That's, I ain't that guy even a little. I got a shot here on this one. It's, it's okay. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. God always knows what he's doing. You see, we had a great friendship first, which has led us to 23 years of an awesome, exciting, still adventurous marriage. And I can still tell you right now, 23 years later, 
my hand to Jesus on everything holy and sacred. My wife is my best friend. There's no one else I would rather spend time with. She's my best friend. We are simpatico. And if you don't have that there and you base your marriage on ridiculous things like the best of looks, they're going to fade. If it's because someone is charming, know that the truth of the matter is, ultimately it can become deceitful. You've got to base things on much, much deeper things than just skin deep, guys. I know you didn't think you were going to get a sex talk tonight. And I didn't plan on it that way. Well, maybe just a little bit because I knew the passage I was studying. (laughs) But it's true. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Because people are always like, what's the big deal with sexual immorality? This is the big deal. And Paul's driving this home. The big deal is sexual immorality is a thing which should never be mentioned amongst the body of Christ. That means any Christians. It's because it's a picture of Jesus and his beloved bride, the ecclesia, the church. And can you think of a more holy and pure relationship, brothers and sisters? You can't. Ephesians 5, 30 through 32 says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, the most intimate relationship you are meant to have in life is not with your spouse. Ready? That's the second most intimate relationship you are meant to ever have. The most intricate and intimate relationship you were ever meant, ever created, ever formed, ever thought of for was with Almighty God. Because maybe you need to dwell on this later with your head on your pillow. The psalmist says, before my lips can utter speech, you know the intentions of my heart. Now you might think, oh man, I, I know my wife knows me really well. She don't know you like that, does she? Nobody knows you like God. Nobody knows you like Christ. All of your faults, all of your failures, all of your sinful intentions, all of those different things, and yet he still tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not leave us as orphans. He will come to us. Oh, the grace of Christ and how it pierces my heart day in and day out when I meditate upon it. This is why marriage is so sacred by God's design. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Because marriage is God's institution, and it's meant to be analogical. It was meant to show us the intimacy that God wants with us. You see... All around the Thessalonians were the pagans who, again, combined sex and religion. It was all around Thessalonica. All around there. That whole area of Thessaly itself. Dionysus. 
Dionysus was the god of wine, and they actually had a practice in Greece where they would drink wine to the point where they were so inebriated. We're talking about being well past drunk. They were so inebriated, they would have huge orgy-like parties. They would spin around. They would utter unknown languages. This is why some of the other churches had some real problems with speaking in tongues because it was a bleed over from pagan culture into Christian culture. And Paul's telling them, you need to know how to possess your own vessel. Paul says that we are to live a life that shows that the gospel has chained us. And honestly, the gospel should constantly be changing us. The gospel isn't just for like non-believers. The gospel is for us Christians as well. Amen? You got to keep going back to the well, guys. Be remain, just continue to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice and of the grace that's there. You see, the loose living that we find among some believers today brings the gospel into disrepute and even disgrace. You're on display for the world to see. My whole thing is one of my many motivations is to never shame the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He willingly died for me. And I'm gonna tell you, I'm a loser. I would have never died for any of you. I'm sorry. It sounds like a bad gig. And Jesus bared that. Ignominious shame. We don't think about it. We it's so sanitized, even in paintings, which is why I hate paintings of the crucifixion. I always hate them. There it is, Jesus in his big white loincloth. Ooh, that's not even close. It's not how Rome crucified people. Crucified you naked. So that they could remove the last stitch of dignity you held. Now all of you is out there to be peered upon. That's why people would walk by a crucifixion wagging their head with their head to the ground. It was meant to be totally disgraceful. It was the worst of worst that Romans could dole out, invented by the Persians, but made 10 times more torturous by the Romans. To the fact where if you're a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified because Rome said it's, it's too insidious. We don't do it to Roman citizens. I don't want to do it. I don't want to bring shame. I don't want to blaspheme the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't want to. You see, to possess your own vessel is a metaphor for controlling one's own body. And the truth of the matter is you can't serve God and live in sin at the same time. It can't be done. Real freedom in Jesus Christ does not work that way. It doesn't. 1 John 3 verses 4 through 10 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins and in them there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps sinning has seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
There were some very foul, foul things going on in Ephesus in John's day when he writes this in AD 95 to the point where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's got to say some rough stuff like this. You can't go on. You can't make a wanton practice of sin. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over again if the seed of God dwells in you. And that's the bizarrest thing about Christians who are in that backslidden state. Because when you backslide and you move away from the Lord, you kind of sober up to the world and you start to cling to it and enjoy it. But the truth of the matter is, is there's too much of God's spirit in you and there's too much of his goodness surrounding you that you truly really can't enjoy the stupid world and all of its sinful, disgusting passions. And so you run back, but because you still feel tainted by the world and the things you've done, now you can't enjoy Christ, you can't enjoy fellowship, you can't enjoy church, you can't enjoy a sermon, you can't enjoy worship. Because that still small voice is saying, come back to the pleasures of the world. And you're too in Christ to enjoy the world and there's too much world in you to enjoy church. And I can tell you that that is exactly where Satan wants followers of Jesus. And that is the target you bear on your back. That's what he's trying to do. Ever allure you to the wonderment of the world and ever dull your senses to the thing of almighty God. And so I try and tell a lot of younger Christians, you can't sanitize the practices of the world. You'll never Christianize pagan things. You've got to walk in holiness. You've got to be about your father's business. The truth of the matter is, it's a lot easier than I think most of us think. Because John really picked up on this whole idea of abiding and not making a practice of sin from Jesus, his rabbi, during the incarnation. In John 15, one through five, Jesus said, I am the true vine and the father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now you're probably going to, not understand why I have that first he takes away underlined. And I'll tell you why I do, because I think like 90% of English translations actually use a lousy Western idea and don't go to an actual Eastern source. It's the Greek word ero. Ero means to pick up. Anyone who knows anything about farming practices knows that if you have a branch that isn't being fruitful, you don't lop it off. Ready? It's a great way to get more fruit, right? Just snap that branch off. The heck with it. No one does that. Jesus was speaking to an agrarian society that grew its own food. That was the whole nation of Israel 2,000 years ago. When a, when a limb may be hanging too close to the ground and getting bugs and all kinds of other things on and not enough sunlight, you would take some twine and you would tie it up. You would pick it up. 
that it can get more light and that it can become more fruitful. It goes much better with the branch that is already bearing fruit. What does he do? He prunes it a little bit to make it even more of a fruitful bough. You don't cut branches off to get more fruit. You pick them up. Remember the, the, remember the account of the paralytic where a bunch of friends busted up Peter's roof and lowered him down? When Jesus told that man to pick up his bed and go home, it's the exact same Greek word in the same Greek tense, ero, pick up your bed. He didn't say cut up your bed or cut off your bed. He said pick it up and go your way. Jesus is the one who is able to pick us up when we're not bearing fruit, so long as we continue to go with the rest of the verses. Abide, 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 abide. Four different times. And you know what Jesus is telling you? If you don't abide in me, there's no way in the world you're going to do anything good. Just as if a tree branch were cut off from a tree, it would never, ever bear fruit because it wouldn't be in the trunk. He says it one more in the negative to drive it home in verse five, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And always remember, nothing is no thing or the absence of an act. What can we do outside of Christ? Nothing. Oh, sure, you can do a lot of things. None of them will be eternally significant. And none of them will be, again, the motivation of the heart of our Father. When we abide actively in Christ, we will not make a practice of sin. Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards wrote something in his Bible that was so life-changing for me when I started to read the works of Edwards when I was 17. And in every front of every Bible Jonathan Edwards had ever possessed, and I've made a practice of it myself, maybe you'd like to, please do. He wrote a, a, a simple phrase in English. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And I have, I have found it to be exceedingly abundantly true. If I'm not in the word of God, I'm subject to all kinds of stupid acts and stupid cravings and stupid motivations of my heart and just a whole lot of stupid and then I get in sin, and then I am repelled from my Bible. It becomes now somehow morally repugnant to me. And now the very thing that was meant to keep me from sinning, now sin and its devious acts are keeping me from it. Because Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing between joints and spirit, soul and spirit. It is a discerner and knower of the intents of the heart. There's nothing like the word of God. There's nothing. There's no literature on the planet that is alive and active and inspired by God. None outside of the Bible. None. And that's why you can read every great work of literature on the planet and still be spiritually dead inside and read one paragraph. And I don't care where it is. And you're reading something inspired by God. Something penned with humanity in mind written down as examples for our learning and our instruction. And that's amazing. Brothers and sisters, we need to simply abide in Christ. 
And then when those little temptations and those little foxes that steal the grapes and spoil the vine, like it says in Song of Solomon, we'll ignore those things. And we won't allow them to spoil our fellowship with God. For you see, God, he didn't call us to uncleanness. Sanctification is part of a Christian's calling. The call of God comes to us in the form of the gospel. And to those who receive the gospel are the called. Therefore, they in turn are called to be holy, like it says in 1 Corinthians 1-2. And not called for uncleanness. Whoever hears God's call to salvation also hears his call to a holy life. A life of holiness. Not that you've got to muster it up. You don't have strength. You can't muster it up. But you can abide. And as you abide, he will change. Again, when Christians live in open, wanton sin, they're in a very real way making a mockery of what Jesus did for those that he called out of the darkness. And we don't want to do that. This is a book that I like to go to and read a lot when I'm studying. If you've never picked up a copy of A.T. Roberts' Word Pictures of the New Testament, man, treat yourself to an $11 book that you will just love over and over again. Not for uncleanness, but in sanctification. Dr. Roberts tells us here that Paul makes a sharp contrast by the two prepositions here. Epi, which means on the basis of, and en, which we often translate as the simple English word I-N, in or in the sphere of, meaning that God has called us all unto a pure sex life consistent with his aims and purposes. This is why three distinct times in the Song of Solomon, it says, do not awaken love before its time. Do not awaken love before its time. Do not awaken love before its time. Because Paul tells us when we do that, we are defrauding someone. When you do that, you're stealing something intimate that is meant for one other person in the covenant of grace and marriage, and you're stealing it. That's the problem with that. And I can tell you right now what the problem is. We have a generation that's so jacked up, it doesn't have a concept of real marital love anymore because it's been giving its love away all over the place. Go ahead, see what the concept of free love in our society does. It brings ruination. It doesn't make anything better. It takes the sacred and degrades it to secular. That's what it does. Sex is wonderful and awesome. Conjugal love is designed by God. It's designed by God. It is. For the covenant of marriage. That's what it's designed for. And Paul is making a strong point that when you do that, you actually are defrauding someone of something. This is why sexual sin is never to be made um, of, of the church or Christians. It's not supposed to be mentioned because it's the only sin that you commit against your own body and against someone else's body. Do you understand? It's a more atrocious and egregious sin. You want to just sin? You know, there are all kinds of things. But it's bizarre. It's sexual sin is twice as bad which is why it's come down so strongly against in God's word. 
You see, guys, it was necessary for Paul to place this lawfully ideal before the Thessalonian Christians living in a very pagan world. And I can tell you right now, I don't know if you've looked at some of the laws and some of the things going on, but as disgusting as it sounds, upcoming right now, there's going to be an 11-year-old in a drag show somewhere out in Oregon. And they've got flyers, and they're presenting it, and people are celebrating, and they're yelling, oh, look at the equity. Oh, look at the diversity. And let me tell you right now, that's pedophilia. Any freak who goes out to watch an 11-year-old dress in drag and provocatively dance around a bar, that is literally child endangerment. People who put that event on should be thrown in jail. And if you think I'm being too strong, let's talk later. But I, um, I tell you, that, that those people should be put on the sex offender list. 11-year-old? An 11-year-old drag? I'm almost positive there's got to be some kind of laws being broken at that point. So what kind of society we have right now here in America? People have lost their minds. I finally live long enough to watch people absolutely lose their minds and defend depravity to the nines. Defend it. Ergo, it's equally important now. We need to hear things like this because it's easy to be sucked into things because our culture is so sexualized. For crying out loud, you can't even watch commercials in between TV shows anymore because who knows what is going to be flashing before your eyes. Which, by the way, the Bible calls the window to the soul. So watch out what you let in. What do we do now? How do we get it right after we've been so wrong? It's totally possible. You see, that's the awesome thing about a God of grace. We don't got to hit ourselves with a whip. We don't got to crawl up staircases full of broken glass. We don't have to do any of that kind of nonsense. Because we already have a Savior who paid it all. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's a beautiful passage. And not for a second is it meant to condemn. It is meant to let you know that God is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all our unrighteousness. And that also means that guilt that is associated with past sins. And in all honesty, you know how instantaneous the Father's forgiveness is? Faster than that. Jonathan Edwards rightfully said that the life of a Christian is the life of one who is by nature, one who must become a confessor. Come to Christ and confess. The truth of the matter is he already knows who you are, where you're at, what you've done, why you've done it, why you will do it again. That beautiful hymn, oh the bliss, oh the bliss of my sin was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. All of my sin, all of my shame. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for all of it. All of it. 
So how is it possible to abstain from sin? Paul tells us in verse 8, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The word of God instructs us in Romans 8, 13 through 15. For if you, look, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are as led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That most tender, beautiful Aramaic word. Abba, probably something like daddy. That's what Jesus meant when he says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. It's people who look to Christ with a childlike dependence, just as a little baby looks to her mother or father to be cared for and nurtured, fed, sheltered. That's how the Lord wants us to come to him. Dependence, not childishness, child-like dependency. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul reminds us that our very bodies have become the Holy Spirit's temple, which means God has literally come to abide in us as we abide in Christ. So God's will is simple. It's our sanctification. You don't have to run around and become one of those, you know, that next person who's, you know, I'm seeking God's will, I'm seeking God's will. You know, the Bible actually says what God's will is for your life. It's your holiness. That's what God wants. The more holy dependent you become on him, the more holy you will grow by him. When we choose to commit sexual sin, we defraud people and we openly mock the Lord Jesus and all that he's done. So let us always be mindful that Christ has freed us and we are no longer in bondage because Jesus said in John 8, he who sins become a slave to sin. I mean, do you want to do that? Do you want to shackle yourself? Do you want to give sin the authority in your life? Before, and I mean before, before Cain slaughtered his brother Abel in open field, God came to him and basically said, what are you so upset about? Yeah, I, I didn't accept your sacrifice. I accepted your brother's sacrifice. What are you so upset about? And then God says something that I think a lot of us have forgotten to go back in Genesis and reread. God said, who knows everything in perpetuity and perfection, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. But you must master it. You see, he had anger, but he internalized it and took it out on his baby brother. When in all honesty, Cain could have taken the frustration and the hurt and the anger, and he could have turned it to the Lord and confessed, and he would have been straight with God. And then in his anger, he would have never killed his brother. And last but certainly not least, we need to realize, just as the passage ends in verse Verse 8 here, God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the parakalitos, the one who comes alongside parallel, and he comes to help and encourage. And he's next to us in that he's with us, 
He indwells us and he will even overflow and come upon us for good, good works. You see, we really are free indeed, brothers and sisters. But we must also simply abide in Jesus. Just as Jesus said, apart from him, we will do no good thing. So I want to do something very different tonight. Very different. As we break into small groups, I want you guys to go back over the passage, go into different passages, and because I think that this is one of the most important things you can do as Christians who are in a community of love and unity with one another, I want you guys to discuss some of the ways in which we can safeguard ourselves in our sanctification, in our sexual purity. Yes, I know that might be super uncomfortable, Pastor Jay. Absolutely, I'm, I'm really praying that it's not. What I want it to really become is a means of accountability. This means that I'm thinking tonight it's really great if ladies would sit with ladies. I know boyfriends are all boo-hoo and cry. We'll get you some tissues, you'll get over it. There are plenty of dudes here, we'll love you. It'll be very bromantic, I swear. Okay, let the ladies sit with ladies so that all y'all can be really honest with one another. Mixed groups are a really bad idea, unless you are the most openest, honest people in the whole entire world. I just don't think it's a good idea. So tonight, we're going to do it very synagogue-ish, very Jewish together. We're just going to keep it very Judaic, right? Amen, Silverman? Women with women and men with men. I'm not asking you to reveal your darkest and dirtiest secret. That's ridiculous. I don't want anyone to do that. What I want us to do is to know that this is a place where mutual accountability is actually, believe it or not, which actually leads us to healing. You know what it says in James 5? Confess your faults one to another. I mean, I know the Catholic Church decided to make little wooden boxes and then you sit in them and you tell some guy all your woes and he tells you to do 55 Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. I don't think James meant that, by the way. What I, what I do mean is this. An analogy told to me when I was 10 years old is an analogy that'll always stay with me. Do you know that sin and mushrooms are much alike? I bet you didn't know that, did you? You need to know something about mushrooms before you can know something about sin. Mushrooms grow in dirt and best in damp darkness. If you expose them to sunlight, they stop growing and die. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, sin is the same way, left unchecked. In the moist darkness of your soul, it'll continue to perpetuate. And when you expose sin to the light of Christ, who is the son of God, your sins will dry up and die as well. So there is a good and healthy way in which we can come together, not in a condemning kind of way, but in a very graceful kind of way. And we can be a support system that God would have us to be one for another. There is strength in accountability. That's one of the many assets that the church has that we should not ignore. So let's break into groups.